Please turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. If you're just joining us for this series on Malachi, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, go back one. There you are. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 is where we're going to start this morning. A few years ago, I stumbled across some wisdom on love, dating, and marriage that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, All of these insights are from children between the ages of 5 and 10. There's a lot of wisdom here. When asked, what do most people do on a date? A boy named Mike, age nine, responded. He said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies. And that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. Is it better to be single or to be married? Lynette, age nine, said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need somebody to clean up after them. <laughs> What's the proper age to get married? Judy, age eight, said 84, because at that age, you don't have to work anymore and you can spend all your time loving each other. Why does love happen between two particular people? Harlan, age eight, said, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow arrow or something, but the rest isn't supposed to be so painful. (laughs) What is falling in love like? Roger, age nine, he said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. Leo, age seven, he said, if falling in love is anything like learning to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. And the Bobby, age eight, he said, well, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. (laughs) How do you make love endure? Randy, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget you never take out the trash. (laughs) I know who said that. How can you tell if two adults at uh, eating dinner at a restaurant are in love? Christine, age nine, said, it's love if they order one of those desserts that are on fire. They like to order those because it's just how their hearts are on fire. Then Brad, age eight, said, people in love will just be staring at each other and their food will get cold. Other people care more about the food. A lot of wisdom there. This morning, we're going to talk about marriage and divorce. I'm going to talk about a subject uh, that I know is is very sensitive for many of you. I suspect that every person sitting here has been touched in some way by divorce. Maybe you are divorced. Maybe someone divorced you. Maybe you caused a divorce. Maybe your parents divorced. Uh, Really, it's hard to find a family in which someone has not been affected pretty directly by divorce in our culture. So I know it's very sensitive, uh, but I also know that God speaks to the issues that are most sensitive in our lives, to the issues that are most important in our lives. So we cannot in 30 minutes cover this topic exhaustively, but we're going to look at what Malachi says, and we're going to look at some thoughts from Jesus and Matthew as well. So I want you to begin reading with me in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. 
You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, so that you do not deal treacherously. Uh, There were several problems that Malachi had to address in his letter. Two in particular that I would say were spiritual in nature, but they affected the society deeply. Those were marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, and then divorce without biblical justification. Two issues that we're going to address this morning. Marriage of a believer to an unbeliever, and then divorce without biblical justification. So, regarding the first, marriage of a believer to an unbeliever. Apparently what was happening in Malachi's day is that Jewish men, Jewish believing men who worshipped Yahweh, were marrying outside of the faith. They were marrying foreign women who did not worship the Lord. Look with me here in the end of verse 11. It says, uh, they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, remember, the issue fundamentally is not that these women are not racially Jewish. The issue is that they do not worship the Lord. Last week, we mentioned the fact that Jesus actually had two women who were not Jewish in his own lineage. He had Rahab, whose profession was harlotry, who was also not Jewish. She was from Jericho. But she became a worshiper in the Lord, and she became a part of Jesus' lineage. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not a Jew, but she became a worshiper of the Lord. And so, fundamentally, the issue was not their ethnicity, but the fact that they were not worshipers of the Lord. Now recall that the background for the book of Malachi is what's happened in Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly the end of the book of Nehemiah. So at the very end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah writes this. He says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. As a result, because they could not speak Hebrew, they could not understand worship of Yahweh. And so the dominant culture of these mixed marriage families became the culture of the pagan nations. And again, the issue was not race. The issue is that the home was divided. And there was no provision made for the next generation to worship the Lord because they couldn't even speak the language. And God says, this is treachery. Five times in this paragraph, he says, this is treachery. And why does he use that language? I want you to read with me again the first part of verse 10. It says, do we not all have one father? Do we not all have one father? Are we not all one family? The primary analogy that's given for us to understand our relationship with God is that of family. At times, God pictures himself as a father and we're his children. At times, God pictures himself as uh, the husband and we are the bride. The point is, the relationship is closer than any other relationship 
It is a relationship of family. And so what God is saying to these people is you've committed treachery because you have invited someone into our family that hates me. You've invited someone into our family that absolutely and utterly has hated me and rejected me. That is treachery. You have divided the family. Now, what's the application for us? Well, it's pretty direct, actually, and it's pretty simple. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, don't marry someone who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. There's just one biblical injunction that is given to a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is marry another believer in Jesus Christ. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul uses the analogy of two oxen, and they are unequally yoked. One is big and strong, the other is small and weak, and so they cannot pull straight. They cannot plow straight. They are unequally yoked. They're moving different directions and at different speeds, so they cannot be a genuine partnership because the most important component of a healthy marriage is that each is worshiping the one true God. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, do not marry an unbeliever with one caveat. If you are already married to a non-believer, do not divorce. 1 Corinthians 7 is extremely clear on this matter. Verses 12 and 13. If any brother, that is a believer, one who is part of our family, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. If you are married to someone who is not a believer, do not divorce. Remain married. And pray that God will use your marriage to draw your spouse into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second issue that's addressed is divorce without biblical justification. Read with me again chapter 2 and verse 13. This is yet another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Uh, In other words, the, the Jewish men apparently were divorcing their Jewish wives. Why? Probably so that they could marry the foreign wives. So that they could have freedom to go out and marry these ladies. Why did they want to marry foreign women? Well, you know, we're not told directly in the text. It may be that it was a financial concern. They wanted the money that these women would bring in. Maybe it was an issue of security. If they had an alliance with a family of a neighboring nation, they would have added security rather than just trusting in God to be their security. Maybe it was simply that grass is greener on the other side. These women were different. They were exotic. Whatever reason, Jewish men were breaking their covenant in order to marry foreign wives. The result, he actually states first in verse 13. Let's read that again. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The result of this is that God no longer regards their worship. That is, there is a a fracture in their intimacy with God. They show up to worship, and God has called the priests to close the doors. He says, don't come. Don't pretend as if there is no issue between us. Our relationship is not intimate right now because your sin has created separation. 
Sin always creates separation. We are born, in fact, separated because we are born with the debt of Adam's sin upon us. And then as soon as we know how to make choices, we begin to choose things that are contrary to the will of God and we rack up our own sins and our sins creates a separation between us and God. Jesus Christ came to reconcile, to bridge the gulf of our separation with God. When we believe in Jesus Christ, he removes that debt of our sin and he makes us members of God's family. We become sons and daughters. Okay, we enter into that family and because God is faithful, we cannot be removed from that family ever. The challenge is we don't always behave as if we are members of God's family, right? We're secure. We know that we're loved by God because he's loyal. He's faithful. And yet our sin as members of the family also creates a separation. We don't enjoy intimacy with our heavenly father. That's what's happening here in Malachi's day. These are genuine believers. But when they come to worship, God says, I really don't even want to hear it. I'd prefer that you not come at all because you are pretending that there is nothing between us. You're pretending there is no separation because of your sin of divorcing your wives. You need to deal with that and not pretend that it does not exist. Your sin has created separation. Now, how do we apply this? Um, I, I want to give you several application points, but I, I want to um, make the statement first. I can't cover every issue regarding divorce. Okay. Marriages are very complex matters. And marriages struggle and fail for a lot of different reasons. The Bible, in fact, doesn't cover every possibility of why there is a problem in a marriage. The Bible gives us principles, and we have to take those and apply them with wisdom. And so what I want to give you is just a few principles about divorce and marriage. Okay, I'm just going to give you a few principles. The first is this. Divorce is never commanded, it's just permitted. And things happen in a marriage. But nothing happens in a marriage for which the Bible says, therefore, you must divorce your spouse. In fact, uh, reconciliation is almost always the preferable route, no matter what has transpired. Okay, divorce is never commanded, but it is permitted. God, our Heavenly Father, knows that sometimes things get broken to the point that on earth we're, we're just not going to be able to put them back together. And so there are a few reasons that are biblically permissible. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. If you're married, you may have noticed that marriage is difficult sometimes. All right? uh, that started in the garden. With the fall, Adam and Eve had tension. They had conflict. So marriage is written about in the Old Testament. From Genesis all the way to Malachi. Marriage is written about in the New Testament. From Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. Okay? Jesus addressed the topic in Matthew chapter 19. Verse 3. So some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, there is significant historical context to this question. Okay, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? In Jesus' day, there were two Pharisaical schools that were the primary schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Uh, one could be considered conservative, one could be considered liberal. Hillel was the liberal school. School of Hillel said, a man can divorce his wife for any reason at all. My food is cold when I come home and I want to eat. I don't like her cooking. I don't like her cleaning. 
I just don't like her anymore. Any reason whatsoever, Hillel said, divorce is permitted. Shammai said, no, divorce is permitted only in the case of adultery. These Pharisees are coming and they're saying, Jesus, pick a side. Shammai or Hillel. Okay, that's the setting. They are not addressing all matters in which a person might biblically be permitted to divorce. But one particular argument that was going on at this point in time. So, Jesus, choose a side. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? Hillel said yes. Shammai said no. Jesus answered and he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, they're not satisfied with that answer. They press it a little further. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I want you to notice the shift in vocabulary between verses seven and eight. They said to him, Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce? Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted. In other words, divorce is never commanded. It is at times permitted, but it's not commanded. And in particular, the attitude of their hearts in this day is they're trying to find an easy way out. They're trying to find an easy way out. Divorce is never commanded, but it is permitted. When is it permitted? Well, I think there are probably three biblical reasons or reasons that wisdom leads us to. The first is adultery. It's labeled here immorality. In the Old Testament verse that uh, Moses, where Moses is quoted, it's called indecency. It is beginning a relationship with someone other than your spouse. Okay? Adultery. But I want you to notice as well that even in the case of adultery, divorce is not commanded. I have known many marriages that have suffered from adultery. But husband and wife have stayed together. It's a lot of work. And it takes a long time for trust to be rebuilt. But I have seen miraculous things done in marriages that reconcile even after there is unfaithfulness. I've known couples who have divorced from one another and years later reconciled. Uh, I performed a remarriage ceremony in my office here a few years ago of a couple who had been divorced for five years and God had miraculously reconciled them. It can happen. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes things become broken beyond repair in this lifetime. But I always encourage couples to work hard at reconciliation. Work, work, work. Don't give up easily, even in the case of adultery. Second, abandonment. Uh, Jesus doesn't bring up the point because it's not part of that historical argument between Shammai and Hillel at this point. But Paul talks about abandonment in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, if the non-believer leaves, let that person leave. That was uh, Old Testament, New Testament times. That was considered one of the biblically permissible reasons. If, if a spouse abandons, if a spouse uh, fails to provide the basic necessities of life through abandonment, then, as Paul says, let that person leave. What are you to do? What are you to do? The covenant has been broken. The marriage vows have been broken. So abandonment is the second reason. A third reason, I don't see it stated explicitly in the Bible, but I think wisdom would tell us 
that under abuse or endangerment, at least separation is usually wise. If a couple comes to me and there's physical abuse in the home, spouses endangered or children are endangered, I tell them at the very least, you need to have safety in your home. Part of a, a basic function of marriage is safety and protection within the walls of the home. Those are three, what I would argue, are biblical or wisdom-based reasons why divorce is permitted, not commanded, but permitted. Now, second principle. Divorce is not the final word about you and your life. And when, you, when you're in the midst of a marriage that is falling apart, it feels like this is the only thing that defines you as a person, and it feels like you will never recover whatsoever. I'm here to tell you that because of the amazing power of God and his redemptive power in every, absolutely every area of our lives, divorce does not have to be the final word about you. Okay? Whether you're a husband and wife going through divorce or whether you're a child and your parents have divorced, God can, can heal your heart. God can continue to use you in powerful ways for his kingdom. That is what God does. This does not have to be the one single thing that defines you. Third principle, if you are married, fight for your marriage. Every marriage is hard. Okay, every marriage must be worked for. Because Satan hates marriage, he attacks marriage. Every single couple needs to work. Some marriages need a lot more work than others, granted. People come in sometimes with a lot more baggage from their past or personalities that just conflict, and there's a lot more work required. But every marriage, you must invest in this thing or it will die. It is like a plant that must be cultivated or it will shrivel. And so I encourage you, invest in your marriage. Fight, fight, fight for your marriage. Even if you have been wounded. I've had couples come in to me and they say, you know, we're staying together, but we're only staying together for the sake of the kids. And I say, way to go. If that's the only reason right now, then that's enough. Do it just for the sake of your children. Even if you cannot find an ounce of affection any longer for your spouse, just for your kids. Because the fact of the matter is, your children will be better off in almost every case, unless there is endangerment, physical endangerment. The children will almost always be better off if you stay together. So fight, fight, fight for your marriage. Why? Let me give you two reasons. We could probably come up with a hundred, but I want to give you the primary two biblical reasons. First, Marriage is the primary model of God's love. God has given a a visual aid to help us understand how he loves us, and it is marriage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created a creature in his image. But his fullness of that image really wasn't reflected on earth until he made male and female, where you had uh, two separate, distinct people, very different, and yet they came together and they became one flesh or one family. That is a picture of the Trinity. Three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God. Husband, wife, two equal, distinct people, yet one family. Father is over all. The Son submits to the Father. The Son and the Father send the Spirit who glorifies the Son, who glorifies the Father. There's a hierarchy of authority, and yet they're all equal. Within the marriage, the husband is the head of the wife, and the wife is to honor her husband. There's a hierarchy of authority, but they are co-heirs of the grace of life. And if the husband doesn't honor his wife, God doesn't listen to his prayers. That is a picture of the Trinity. It is also, we're told by Paul, a picture of the way that God loves us. 
Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? Well, you know what? He looks at every single one of us and he sees right through us. He sees all of your faults. He sees all of your inadequacies. He sees all of your failures. He sees every single one of your sins. And he says, I love you. Do you look at your spouse the same way? Do you see those things and say, I love you and I will remain faithful to you? That is how God loves us. The book of Hosea is a a, a stunning reminder of this. Hosea married a a woman of disreputable character. In the context of their marriage, she went out and committed adultery multiple times. She left him. The man who became her next husband became tired of her and put her up for sale as a slave. Probably stripped her naked and brought shame upon her. Hosea is told by God, I want you to go into the marketplace where that woman is humiliated and where she's bringing humiliation upon you and I want you to purchase her and I want you to bring her back into your home. Go again, love this woman. Because that's how God loves us. That is how, it's, it's stunning, it's remarkable. It's nothing like the way that the world loves. And so when our marriages function well, and yes, we have challenges and struggles just like every marriage, even non-believers, every marriage, must, you must work for it. But when we're struggling in the midst of our marriage and yet we choose to remain faithful to one another and we remain committed to the marriage, that provides a, a visual aid for the world of the way that God loves us. But when the marriages in the church fail, then people have a right to say, perhaps God is not loyal in his love because it's not reflected in their lives. God has given us marriage primarily, I would say, not for our personal enjoyment. God has given us marriage primarily to demonstrate the love of God for the world. So that is the primary reason we work for our marriages. Second, Marriage is the foundational institution of a healthy society. First institution God created when he brought Eve to Adam, he he joined them together and they became one flesh or one family. And God said, this will be the foundation of society. Healthy marriages will form the foundation of a culture. When they are healthy, the culture remains healthy. When they begin to crumble, the culture fails. There was a study a few years ago uh, that came out of Rutgers University. Now, it, it... By no means uh, was this marriage think tank, or is this, it still exists. It is not conservative. It is not Christian by any means. But their data was very clear. One of the things that they discovered was that when a, a man comes from a divorced family and a woman comes from a divorced family and they marry, they are three times more likely than the national average to get a divorce. Okay? So when a man comes from a divorced family and a woman comes from a divorced family, they get married, they are three times more likely to get divorced. Now, if you are from a divorced family, let me remind you, that is not a prophecy on your life because you are not a statistic. I've known many people who come from divorced families and they say, that will not be us. And they mark a bold path and follow Jesus Christ for a lifetime, right? But what it's saying to us is culturally speaking, divorce is self-perpetuating. Divorce becomes embedded in the culture and it becomes worse and worse and worse. And you know, it doesn't always even show up in the divorce statistics because what happens culturally is fewer and fewer people get married. 
And so then when they separate, it doesn't show up as a divorce. That's what's happening largely in Europe. And culturally, you know, we are right behind them. So two reasons. Why do we fight for a marriage? First, it's the primary model of God's love. Second, it is the foundational institution for a healthy culture. Now, before we wrap up, I, I kind of want to pull us back up, right? This, this is really heavy. So I want to, let's just pull up, okay? If you want to stand up and take a breath for a second, or that's fine, you know? But I, I want to I end kind of, let's, let's pull it up, okay? I want to give you five tips for building a healthy marriage. And obviously this is not an exhaustive list. There are more than five good ideas for marriage. Uh, I'm just going to give you five this morning. All right. Five ideas. First, singles, choose wisely. If you are not married, choose wisely. No decision will affect your life more dramatically than the choice of a spouse. Choose wisely. Obviously, as Paul has said, do not marry a non-believer. But if you're dating a non-believer, break up now. Or when you leave, you can wait. You don't need to call right up. But, but, and I'm telling you, you know, don't call me and make an appointment with me and say, I'm dating a non-believer. What should I do? Don't, don't even go there with me, right? Because, I mean, it's, it's stunning. It's remarkable. I understand. But sometimes dating leads to marriage. So, you know, you may say to me, well, Brian, you know, we're not dating. We're just, we're just hanging out. We're not dating, we're talking. I don't care what you call it today. You're interested and you're not guarding your heart and you can't control where your heart will go. Don't date as a missionary. Okay, don't, don't try to missionary date, we used to call it. Don't, don't date with the expectation that you will save that person. I'm not going to get emotionally invested, but I'm going to share Jesus. Please. Don't go there, right? Don't go there. I think something between the extremes of the American dating system, which is designed to deceive, right? Uh, as that young man observed, that boy observed, and arranged marriages. Somewhere in between, I think there's some wisdom, right? Uh, I don't really want, I didn't want anybody telling me who to marry, but man, draw on the wisdom of friends and family. Let them see you with that person. Let them know that person. Be open, be patient, and listen to advice. Choose wisely. Second, seek input, input before you're in a crisis. I have a lot of marriages that, that land in my office, and they have done so much damage already. You go, whew, I don't know how you're going to pull out of this. It can happen, but it's miraculous. Seek input before the crisis occurs. If you are in crisis, I encourage you. You can call any of our pastors. You can call one of our elders. We'll sit down with you and we'll help, you know, do some diagnosis and help you get some steps where to move next. But I would encourage you get input before the crisis happens. We've got a lot of professionals here. I know that you, you go to a continuing ed. You read books on your profession. You seek input from uh, other professionals so you can do your job better. You should put at least as much effort and energy into your marriage as you do into your profession. So go buy a book this week. Read it with your spouse. Go to a conference. Sit down with another godly couple. Maybe they're years ahead of you and you like their marriage and get input. Okay? Invest in your marriage. Third, guard your marriage. Satan wants to kill it. You need to guard it. How do you guard it? Uh, guard the input. 
Who do you hang out with? As a married couple, who do you hang out with? Do you hang out with other couples that do not have healthy marriages and they're just digging, digging, digging all the time? When we first got married, um, our first year of our marriage, we realized, you know, we have a, a lot of friends. We can't hang out with all of them. So there were three couples who were further along in marriage. And we said, you know, this year we're going to invest with these three couples because we love the way that they love one another. We admire their marriages. And so our first year we invested and we guarded the kinds of input that came in. I would encourage you to do the same. Fourth, speak kindly. You go, duh. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Well, you know, I've couples come into my office and, you know, they're just flat out mean. They're just mean. And I want to say, duh. Could you, you know, just be nice. Can we start here? First marriage counseling, just be nice. You know, they're just, they're just nicking. You know, there's a big, you know, a little sarcasm, uh, a little bit of criticism here and there, a little contempt, rolling of the eyes. You know, it's just, you know, if you have a small stone in your shoe and you walk with that stone in your shoe for five years or 10 years or 20 years, you're going to have a big hole in your foot. And it has been demonstrated that you can prove which marriages will fail based upon the quantity of criticism within the marriage. And it doesn't take much criticism to destroy a marriage over the long run. I don't care if you think you have thick skin or you think your spouse has thick skin. We are fragile. We simply cannot bear a lot of criticism. Do we need to be challenged? Do we need to speak truth to one another within our marriage? Absolutely. But we also need an incredible load of encouragement to have the courage to face the issues in our lives. And I can promise you, your spouse almost certainly knows what's wrong with him or her. They probably don't need you reminding them every day of their deficiencies. Okay? Speak kindly. Speak encouragingly. Invest, invest, invest. I hear spouses talking to one another in ways that they never would have talked to one another when they were lying. I mean, when they were first dating. Right? They never would have spoken that way, right? Oh, don't marry him. You know, he's, he's a jerk. I'm out. I mean, you know, it's so clear. But now you get into this marriage and you, in a sense, you've got this level of security and you begin to dig, 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 dig. Just start here with the simple tip. Speak kindly. Speak kindly. Speak as you used to speak when you were dating. Fifth idea. Practice thankfulness. Okay, practice thankfulness. Go back and think, why, why was I attracted to this person in the first place? What drew me in? What, what made me stay? What made me say yes when he asked? Why did I ask her to marry me and spend the rest of her life with me? Go back and remind yourself and rehearse the things that got you in here, into this relationship. You know, one of Satan's great ploys is that he gets you to begin to focus on the negatives in your spouse. And guess what? Every spouse has them. Every husband, every wife. You married someone broken. You're dating someone broken. Just deal with that reality. Okay, we're, we are all that way. Well, what Satan will do once you're married is get you to focus your attention on all of those negatives. And then you know what happens pretty soon as you're focusing on all those negatives in your spouse? You look around and you go, she doesn't have those negatives. He doesn't have those negatives. He probably doesn't have any negatives. He's probably perfect. I should, that's, that's where I should be, right there with that perfect person. 
because of course I'm perfect as well. You know, and so you're just totally, totally deceived. You don't see the fact that, no, that person has a whole host of other negatives and you've forgotten all of your spouse's positives because Satan has deceived you. It is a lie. That is a phantom. It is a lie. Don't be deceived. How do you guard yourself against deception? Give thanks. Write down the things you are thankful for in your journal. Write them down in a note card. Send them to your spouse daily. Wear your spouse spouse out with your thankfulness. That will transform your spouse. But don't do it for that reason. Do it because it is also a guard against the deception of Satan in your marriage. Give thanks. This morning as we close, we are going to give thanks. We have an opportunity to remind ourselves of the way that God has demonstrated his love for us in Jesus Christ. Communion is an opportunity to remember that Jesus gave his body, he gave his blood. And because he did that, he gave us the power to become different people. He gave us the power to endure when marriage is challenging and difficult and we're not communicating well. He gives the power to heal a marriage that's been deeply damaged. All of that happened because of the power of the cross. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take a few moments silently and meditate. I want us to give thanks for Jesus. But if you're married, I want you to also take a few moments and give thanks for your spouse. If you've wounded your spouse, before you take communion, I want you to ask the Lord's forgiveness for that. And then today, ask your spouse's forgiveness. As the men come forward, I ask all of us just to take some time silently to meditate. We're going to hold the cup and the bread until everyone's served, and then we'll take it together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body. It's been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is shed to remove the debt of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the powerful reminder of the extent of your love for us and giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your loyalty to us. And we thank you, Father, for the empowerment that we receive from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that we would have courage to fight for our marriages that are struggling, that we would have wisdom to invest in uh, our marriages, even if they're not struggling right now, that we would experience the, the healing power of your spirit for the hurt that's been caused or that we have caused. Father, we thank you that all this is possible because of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have demonstrated in our lives. Thank you for uh, forgiving us for our debts and giving us grace to honor you in our lives. I do pray, Father, for uh, these brothers and sisters in Christ, this church family, that through our marriages, uh, you would really demonstrate to this world the way that you love us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.